0: Hello and welcome to the Undisciplined Podcast. It's your host as always, Nico Beitendach. And today we have a great guest lined up in the form of Professor Stuart Alden, who is Professor of Political Theory and Geography at the University of Warwick. This is a super episode. Professor Alden has written extensively on geography, on territory, philosophy. We talk about his books on territory, his work on Shakespeare, and his most recent project on Michel Foucault. Stuart also runs and moderates the very popular Progressive Geographies blog, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary right now. And I think this interview gives a nice overview of the work of Professor Eldon. The link to the blog is in the description of the episode. Please check it out if you don't know it already. This is a bumper episode. Please enjoy Thank you very much, Professor Alden, I'll say Stuart, for speaking to me today.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: No, it's an honor. So usually on this podcast, the tradition is for our guests to speak a little bit about their academic background, how they got into the topics they were interested in. So this is no exception. So could you be so kind as to tell, tell me how you got interested in the in geography and politics and philosophy like you did and where you come from academically or intellectually?
1: Okay. So my first degree was in politics and modern history, and I went on to do a PhD in that same department, um, PhD in loosely in political theory, but the PhD was on Nietzsche, Heidegger, and Foucault. And I became interested in the question of how their historical approach is took into account questions of, of space, place, geography, and so on. That became my first book, which was on Heidegger and Foucault, around this question of what I called spatial history. And because I was engaging with this this question of spatiality, of geography, of place, and so on, as well as it being informed by the work of these philosophers, it was also something that was bringing me into closer contact with debates in geography. And I published a couple of pieces in geography journals. I started to talk to other geographers and and eventually a job came up at Durham in political geography. And that that was really the moment that I I became a geographer in a sense. Uh, So my training wasn't in geography, but it was through the topic of interest and then the the move to Durham's geography department for a job.
0: I see. So this early i'm not I'm 100 not sure on the exact dates or timelines but i feel like your interest in spatiality regarding the political angle it, it feels like a little bit before the people can say is the spatial turn in 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 theory how did you develop that interest you say you were studying politics not geography initially right. so h- how did you turn to spatiality? Was it because of Edward Soja or a personal experience, something like that, that convinced you of it?
1: Edward, Edward Soja was very important. Um, I remember attending a conference in London, right towards the beginning of my PhD. And I was working on Heidegger and Foucault. And Ed gave a talk that this was after postmodern geographies, but before Third Space came out. And he gave a talk where he was, thinking about this this question of space and, and what he was calling the res- the um, the reassertion of space in social theory. And he was talking about Foucault, talking about Lefebvre and others. And I thought, this is great. This is really interesting. This is helping me to understand something that, that's a question for me. But, and I say this with great respect, because I, I found Ed's work incredibly valuable. There was something about how he was reading these thinkers that felt a little kind of imprecise to me and I thought with a sort of background in political theory history of political thought that I could engage with with these thinkers Foucault and then later Lefebvre in a more textual contextual um, a closer reading kind of way of engaging with these but but somebody like Ed was very important in terms of raising a general problem that I wanted to investigate
0: yeah that's interesting so you're not the first geographer we have here. We also, a few months ago, I spoke to Simon Springer. Right. Who also came to geography kind of through politics. And he, he was influenced by reading people like Kropotkin or Elise Reclus, And that's how he got into geography. And he gave kind of his definition of geography. But for Stuart Alden, how would you <laughs> define the field of geography?
1: It's a difficult question. I mean, it's one that um, in geography departments, first year students sort of, you know, what is geography? And and particularly for somebody doing an undergraduate degree in geography, they've got to find a way to reconcile human geography with physical geography. But in a sense, it's that relation between people and place, people and landscape, environment. It's around the, the where things happen as much as when things happen. It's the kind of the conditions within which we find ourselves and that we then go on and shape through our actions. So it's very difficult, at least for me, uh, somebody who wasn't trained in geography, to give a sort of definitive answer to that question. But in a sense, what's important is not so much the answer, it's the, it's the posing of the question. It's about thinking this, mm. what is this relation between, and at a later t- point in my work, I called it the relation between people, place and power, that I was interested in, particularly as a political geographer. And it's raising that as a question rather than necessarily having some kind of answer that then locks things down once and for all. Uh, so I suppose that's it. It's it's a problem, it's a question. But I think, in a sense, geography is a, is a sort of sensibility. It's a way of thinking about the world and the relations that go on in the world that perhaps other disciplines don't uh, privilege. And one of the things I found so invigorating intellectually about being in a geography department, and I think this was partly the discipline of geography and partly the particular department I was in, Durham's geography department, mm-hmm. was this freedom to investigate lots of different diverse questions, but that if it was a geographer doing it, this was, this was geography, this could count as geography. And that for me, as somebody who'd come from a, a more sort of traditional disciplinary background of this is politics. This is history, and so on. Geography was very liberating. I I could pursue things I was interested in, following where the problem took me, and that that I found very powerful and, and um, useful in geography.
0: So you say that for you geography is the posing of a question, and this was this links up with a thought I had. You have a blog that you title Progressive Geographies, right? And my first impression of the name was progressive geographies means geography that's perhaps left-leaning or radical or something like that. But then I thought, but progressive can also mean phases in time, not necessarily tied with like a modernistic narrative of progress, but progressive in terms of steps moving along, not necessarily upwards on a curve. But what was your thinking behind that name is there a part well, of that I mean, in that? Or?
1: We, we shouldn't overanalyze the name. Uh, yes, I'm careful of not doing no, that, I but. mean, I, I you know when I started the blog, I had no idea that, that – I mean, it's almost 10 years now it's been running. I had no idea that this would be something that would last that long. I had no sense that I would build an audience uh, that would continue to, to follow it and so on. Um, and at the time, I, I didn't use Twitter So I didn't have the same means of disseminating it that I now have. So the name was a kind of a half idea rather than something that I'd very carefully thought through. But yes, I mean, I have made the argument about the way I think about territory, for example. Territory isn't something that is there, is fixed and is static within which things happen. Territory itself is a process. Territory is dynamic territory changes and it's the continual making and remaking of of these kind of socio-spatial relations that's important so yes you could see progressive in that sense of changing mutable uh transformative as well as as a sort of left leaning politics but but as i said don't don't read too much into the name
0: so the first book of yours that i read that made a very big impression on me was your book the birth of territory okay and this question, it, it can be serious or it can be a joke. <laughs> it's up to you how to take it. But you have this book, the, the, the title is Birth of Territory. And you also have your book, Foucault, The Birth of Power. And I was wondering, specifically on The Birth of Territory, is there a kind of play on words here on Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy? And do you think that territory contains a tragic dimension
1: Ah, okay. Um, Yes, I mean, I certainly had Nietzsche in mind when I was trying to think of a title for that book. And actually, that's one of the books where I've proposed a title to the publisher, and it's been accepted unquestioned. So I think it was the right title for that book. And and University of Chicago Press fortunately agreed with me that that was the right title. Some other books, the title you, you think of when you're writing it, but when it actually comes out, it has a different title because marketing concerns of publishers and so on can can get involved in that decision-making process. But yes, The Birth of Territory, it took me quite a long time before I settled on that as a title, but that was when I, when I kind of thought, well, obviously, that's the title of the book, then it all made sense. And Nietzsche, yes, was very much in mind, but also Foucault, um, mm. Foucault's Birth of the Clinic, The Birth of Biopolitics, or... Discipline and Punish, as we call it in English, is the subtitle is The Birth of the Prison. So this idea of of birth, which itself is a process rather than a single moment, was very much kind of in my mind. But as, as to whether I think territory has got a, a, a sort of a tragic element within it, it would be hard to say that, that that isn't there, but that wasn't a conscious decision in choosing that as a title. But obviously, if we look at the the blood that has been spilt over territorial conflicts historically, it's difficult to, to avoid any sense of a tragic in there. But that wasn't a conscious intention with the title. Sure.
0: If you don't mind, I started developing a kind of theory of the tragic element of a territory. Go ahead, please. Nietzsche's birth of territory, of course, he juxtaposes different streams within Athenian drama, and the Dionysian and the Apollonian, which is the kind of the chaotic and the ordered. And I thought firstly, that gives you the metaphor of the stage, which of course is the stage upon which uh, territory is the stage upon which politics occur. And also through that, but that we can get to later. And then also this idea of chaos and order in a, interplay and n- nature and civilization this kind of distinction that's been used throughout history and maybe order is a bit schmittian Perhaps. and i also thought of course then you if we're talking about the stage it also naturally uh, takes me in the direction of thinking about one of your more recent books on Shakespearean territory
1: right right
0: so i thought there were many many little Interesting connections for me to draw once I try to connect that title with Nietzsche's title, but probably again I'm overthinking a little bit. No,
1: no, I, I can see that. I mean, the, the Shakespeare book, yes, of course. I mean, there's we may come on, onto that, but the tragic plays in Shakespeare quite often have at least a sort of territorial subplot to them of a conflict between powers or a, a threat of invasion or something like that. But then so too to, to Shakespeare's history plays. So the question of genre is is perhaps more complicated than simply seeing it through the tragedies. But we maybe come back to the Shakespeare book later.
0: Yes, I would love to. But then, okay, for a second, staying with the idea of territory as a stage upon which uh, humans act. So you have argued and... In- A few places that territory is an extension of the state's power, but also in another way that it is also territory that that makes the state visible or legible or allows it to emerge. How do you see that? Okay, this is a very broad question, but how do you see this kind of interplay between the state and the political system? And then, which if you would ask me, would be kind of a, uh, I'm sitting here, right on top of the Niklas Luhmann archive okay. in Bielefeld, Germany right now. So I would say, you know, that, that politics is a communicative system, it's all, but it's also in a constructive relationship with, uh, with this material element, the territory. So how, in your thinking, do, would you describe that interplay and making the state visible through the materiality of territory, which on the other hand, territory is, of course, a communicative construct
1: uh, I mean, there's a lot a lot to say about that, and, and I would perhaps not quite use the same language as that to think about these questions, or at least I haven't done in mm-hmm. the past in, in terms of my work. When I talk about extension, there's there's a few things going on in that, that notion. I mean, one is the, the simple idea of, or the relatively simple idea of the projection of power. There's a line that goes back to a, a, a Greek source of that the the, uh, the Spartans laid claim to every bit of land that they could touch their spear to. You have a weapon, how far can that spear extend? How far can that project the power that they had over the land that that they might lay claim to? And states, or or at least polities, would often begin from a centralised, focused point of power and then would spread that power out. And it would Mm -hmm. often gradually become more diffuse as it spread further and further. Equally, you have historically moments where the, the concentration of power is right at the limits, the edges, or, or what we now today call boundaries of states. So the, the relation between spatial extent and political power is an important one. And uh, it was a line I took from the the geographer Jean Gottman that sovereignty was the spatial extent of power or, or the, the spatial extent of sovereignty was a way to understand the question of territory. So there's that sort of extension in a sense of just projection and, and distancing. But there's also the sense that I was trying to work with of extension as a specifically, um uh, a specific characterization of space. And so Descartes famously talks about the way that we understand space as something that is extended in three dimensions and that geometry is the science that best allows us access to it. So this idea of of extension as a specifically geometrical and and calculative way of thinking Mm. behind the way that we understand modern coordinate geometry, the foundation for modern cartography, uh, for land surveying and so on, That geometry in practice, as it were, is also very important, I think, in terms of understanding the transformation of landscapes into territory, if we can use those terms in that way, to think about the way that through the 15th, 16th, 17th century, and so on, states, both both at home, but also in overseas colonies, were engaged in in these large-scale cartographic projects, in these large-scale land surveying, um, partnered also with things they were doing to populations like census, uh, the birth of modern statistics, and so on. Mm. These is a particularly calculative way of thinking. And when that plays out in space, it's this question of extension that I was interested in. So the extension of the state, or what I've sometimes called the geometry of the political, it, it's different ways of trying to understand that modern sensibility of space and then the political complications that, or, or uh, possibilities that follow from that.
0: What I'm wondering is then, if one way of describing your approach would be, or your method would be, uh, conceptual history or begliftsgeschichte. So what I'm wondering is, it, it's very tempting to take political forms, and we say that the state extends itself geographically, so to take political forms or political frameworks and project that onto the, to the landscape or onto the earth. But I was wondering, in your research, do you think that it also happens that the landscape or that earth, I, I don't want to use a loaded term like territory, let's say landscape, that that right. they actually have a kind of reverse effect on how political forms are imagined?
1: I, I think so. I think that's a really good question, but it is equally a difficult question. Something that's become clear to me in the last few years, partly through working with people in a project that was run out of Durham University called the Ice Law Project, which was run by Phil Steinberg. And the the idea behind this project was to say a lot of the ways that we think about territory, that we think about the state, that we think about politics and its geographies, is based on a model that was developed in Western Europe. And it's not just then a a Eurocentric model, but it's based on a particular set of landscape, climactic kind of norms that perhaps in other parts of the world don't hold so well and that this is this idea that if you circumscribe an area and you call it a territory that the landscape over which you have extended this is relatively stable that there is often a very mm. or a fairly clear distinction between what is land and what is sea that the um physical geography things that you use to mark the limits, whether it's a river or a mountain range or a coastline or something like that, these are relatively stable, at least at the time when these were developed from sort of 17th century onwards. But if you take those ideas and you put them into other parts of the world, the dynamic nature of the geography in those places maybe means that these ideas don't work so well. And that what we're seeing, particularly at the moment with the the human-induced climate change that is happening, is that these kinds of questions are becoming strikingly obvious in terms of that, you know, it's the idea that you, you use a river as a boundary between two political units. Rivers obviously move through the landscape, and that this therefore can create problems about that. Or glaciers in, in high alpine regions, glaciers melt. Coastlines change as a result of sea level rise. Uh, and the idea behind the ice Wall project was that if you extend some of these questions to thinking about ice, which is at times water and at times solid and and changes between those. Some of these questions that we have around the law of the sea or international law about territory, these become much more complicated when you start looking at these kind of dynamic landscapes or or what I've increasingly started to think about through the notion of terrain. These ideas perhaps then complicate some of the ways that we have traditionally uh, thought politically about territory, but also perhaps how Theorists of territory have developed models or understandings about these questions. So the Isla project was really helpful to me in working with climate scientists, with uh, anthropologists, with lawyers uh, and others to thinking about these questions in a way that that doesn't privilege the the physical geographies of Western Europe, let's say, um, but is also possible or is adequate to the challenge of, of what's coming with climate change, uh, and there are other projects um, thinking about these kinds of questions. But that—that that for me was an important one. That's when, in a sense, the geography exceeds or, or, or challenges any kind of straightforward sense of human control over it. That you—you you can't control some of these physical processes that are transforming the landscape or the terrain,
0: and also it. Makes me wonder about if you take states, for example, like Russia or Canada, to what extent one can rely on or question their commitment to climate change when it can benefit them greatly in the form of new uh, sea routes in the Arctic.
1: Right, right. It it will transform things that we we thought were relatively fixed in a particular way. And there's a there's a whole set of questions about um, access to resources, access to, to the seabed in those places, particularly mm. shipping channels, the rights of indigenous peoples in those areas, a whole range of questions that are raised by the, the transformations that we're seeing as a result of uh, of global climate change.
0: So my, my own background is in international law and to an extent uh, environmental law, and you you're increasingly starting to think about the concept of terrain as as a specifically political or legal approach to thinking about territory. Do you mind explaining that a little bit more clearly? Um, how does terrain differ from, from territory or from space in general?
1: It, it was an attempt to try to think about the, the physical materiality of the object that I was trying to, to understand And territory Mm -hmm. is so thought or sort of bound up with questions of of political theory, with questions of legal legal questions of jurisdiction or sovereignty and so on. And in in part, there's a self-critique in here in that a lot of what I was doing before was to try to say that we need to think about territory as encompassing a kind of a bundle of relations and that rather than trying to define what territory is once and for all, we should interrogate different registers to try to make sense of The forms that territory has taken in different times and different places. And some of those are economic, some of them are legal, uh, some of them are sort of strategic, uh, great power struggle. I've mentioned the one about the sort of the technologies, the geometry, the land surveying, the cartography and so on. And that that was broadly the framework that I used when I was doing the historical work that went into the birth of territory. But I've continued thinking about these questions and and partly through some of the criticisms of that book and the way I was trying to respond to those criticisms, that, that those were, I hope, a better way of thinking about territory than a lot of the theorizations that had come before. But that didn't mean that they were the only parts or the only um, aspects that we needed to interrogate. And so I've been pushed to, to think more about how specifically colonial forms, influence the way that we think about territory, to think more about kind of corporeal questions of, of the bodies in places and places embodied and the relation between the, the human body and the sort of the physical geography, but also to take the physical geography itself more seriously. And as I said, partly through the engagement with the Law project, it was an attempt to say, you know, so territory isn't something that states can do Without any kind of James Scott calls this the friction of terrain. That mm. certain types of things, you know, you you come to a impassable river, uh, a landscape that's very difficult to move through, uh, a mountain range. There are dynamic aspects to the to the Earth's surface and and the, the below surface that act as a sort of a, not necessarily a complete barrier, but at least a delay or a slowing down of certain types of state projects. And that states can transform these things. I mean, there are huge uh, projects, something like the Panama Canal, for example, would be a, Mm. a, a hugely transformative project of states and of capital to transform a landscape or to transform terrain. But it still has to work with what is there. And so thinking about these kinds of questions and trying to understand them, and I was drawn back to a term that that geographers use, and it tends to be physical geographers and military geographers that use the term, which was terrain. And terrain does get at something about that physical materiality that can be transformed or changed through state or other projects. But it can't be completely ignored or it can't be completely gone beyond beyond. it. It it is an important one. So you get some interesting work in military geography that looks at things like the North Africa campaign in World War II, for example. Mm -hmm. If if you have heavy artillery or tanks going over very sandy ground, then this can be a problem for them. Um, Or you have the the stuff about how they use uh, defoliation agents in, in the Vietnam War to make it easier to see what was happening in in the landscape uh, or the, the trenches and the mud and the tunnelling and so on of World War One? So you get different examples in military geography of how terrain impacts on the military. Uh, in physical geography, terrain is one of the ways that they try to understand form and process in terms of the relation between the transformation of, of uh, geophysical processes and how these... So terrain has got a, a history... And some of the ways that terrain has been understood are not necessarily terribly helpful to what I was trying to get at with this. But it but it seems to me, and I'm not alone in this, um, Gaston Gordillo at University of British Columbia has been doing work around the notion of terrain as well, and, and many others. It's an attempt to think about that physical materiality more seriously when we take into account questions around territory. And I'm including my own work in there. I, I kind of felt that some of us didn't. Adequately take the physical geography into account when we are thinking about these questions. So, terrain's my my best attempt so far at trying to deal with that challenge. Mm-hmm.
0: So, perhaps I want to shift the shift the focus just slightly. So, we mentioned your book on Shakespeare a few minutes ago. So, sure. what moved you to write that book, and why do you think Shakespeare or even literature? more generally is a good vehicle for for thinking about uh, territory or terrain
1: okay so the the birth of territory book has got a few moments in it when I use what we what we would call now literary texts to explore some of the questions that I was interested in in different periods so the three main ones that I use are Sophocles play Antigone um, the poem Beowulf the medieval poem Beowulf and then Shakespeare's play King Lear to try to think about this question of the relation between, as I said, people, place, and power in different moments. Of you know, What's the relation between Antigone and Creon and the city and the burial of the body or the non-burial of the body outside of the city walls? Um, what's going on in Beowulf in terms of an, an understanding of land, both as a place of conflict, but also a place of possession and so on? And then what happens in King Lear? And there's the famous opening scene of King Lear, where where the king has this plan that he will give a third of his kingdom to his three daughters, and or, or really to their husbands. This is then disrupted by his youngest daughter Cordelia, and the, then the rest of the play follows from this sort of broken idea of an inheritance in in a, a three part division of land, which becomes a two part division of land, and the question of territory. Shakespeare rarely uses the word territory, but he, he um, I think, opens up questions about sort of political geographies of lands that is inherited, that is conquered, that is fought over, that is distributed, that is organised, or, um, ordered, mapped, uh, and so mm. on. And so the King Lear reading, which was in The Birth of Territory, and it, it developed into a longer paper, which didn't fit in that book, so I, I published it as a separate piece, and gave it at a conference of uh, Shakespeare scholars and thought, you know, if they don't like this, then maybe that's all I'll ever do with this. But the the response was encouraging. There were some critical questions, but there were some supportive questions. And they were saying things like, well, yes, but what about Coriolanus? Or what about Richard II? And I said, well, that's maybe where I'm going with this. This is what I wanted to develop. And so the idea came that, that I could use a number of different plays by Shakespeare, And what I did in the end with the book was to use each of those plays to explore a different aspect of the question of territory. So I use Richard II to look at economic questions about territory. Henry V particularly to look at legal questions. Uh, Coriolanus to think about bodies. Uh, There's a very physical body, corporeal nature of territory his body and others in that play. Um, I use The Tempest, obviously, but also the plays set in the Eastern Mediterranean to think about the colonial. And so the different plays allow me to to access, in a sense, a different part of the way of, of thinking about territory. And so the book hopefully works in two ways. One is that it explores Shakespeare's plays from that perspective of what is their political geography. But it also uses the plays to build up a much more, multifaceted, complicated way of thinking about territory. Um, So I see that book very much as an extension of my theorization of territory, more than just a a reading of those plays through the lens of of territory. Uh, You could do it with other people, potentially. Uh, I just find that Shakespeare has got so much potential to do that multifaceted reading that I didn't find Mm. in other sources. Were
0: you, just out of curiosity, were you before that project already, uh, fond of Shakespeare? or
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I, I, I did um, English literature to A-level in the UK and Shakespeare had been a, an interest. I mean, I'd read many of the plays before. I, I would often go to see them. One of the advantages about being at the University of Warwick is that I'm half an hour from Stratford-on-Avon so I can go and see everything uh, at the, the Royal Shakespeare Theatre there. So Shakespeare was very much an interest. It became more so as I was working on this book and I would go and see many more productions than than I would have done Mm. before. So there was an interest in it before and I had certainly had some knowledge of the plays, but but I went into them in a lot more detail to write this book.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful that you could combine these two things that at first glance seem kind of disparate, but then bring them together in such a nice way.
1: Well, I enjoyed the book. I mean, the, you know, there are some books that um, I th- I'm glad I've written, but I didn't enjoy the writing of. But but the Shakespeare one was one I very much enjoyed writing.
0: Oh, that's good. So more recently, you are working a lot on Foucault and publishing a series of books on on his work. Right. And I also understand that you're doing a lot of archival work, uh, researching in archives. Yeah. how has, has that experience been? That's, I mean, your methods seem to be quite, quite different. If it's not conceptual history, you're going to see plays at Stratford upon Avon, and now you're doing research in archives. Um, what is, is that a big adjustment for you, or it's
1: are you uh, energized well,
0: by the new challenge? Or
1: I, I suppose the first archival work I ever did, and it wasn't very much, and it wasn't very systematic, was when I was working on Henri Lefebvre. and there's there's not a publicly accessible archive of Lefebvre's own work, but there is an archive of Norbert Guterman, who was a person that Lefebvre worked with in, in the 1930s. And because Gutemann was Jewish, he then moved to uh, New York City uh, in the mid-1930s. And his archive is at Columbia University. And there's some correspondence with Lefebvre, and there's a few manuscripts that Lefebvre had sent him that were, were not published and so on. That was my first sort of gentle... Um, so I dip the foot into the water of doing some archival work. And then in would have been the mid-2000s, I became interested in some of the collaborative projects that Foucault did in the 1970s uh, with a group that was run by Felix Gatari called the Surfi Research Institute. And the, the papers for this were at a, a contemporary publishing archive called EMEC which at the time, this is the mid 2000s, was still based in Paris. And I was interested in what papers they might have there that were related to these projects. They also had the papers of the old Centre Michel Foucault. And they also had the tape recordings of Foucault's lectures. This is before most of them are actually being published. And EMEC has now moved. It's in a, a wonderful residential archive in Normandy in an old Abbey that's been converted into a reading room and residential conference and, and archive centre. So I'd, I'd done a little bit of archival work before, but when I began this work on Foucault, uh, which has been ongoing in the background for a long time, but really since about 2013 it became the focus again. I became interested in what archival material there was accessible of Foucault's at the time, and then Daniel Fer, Foucault's life partner, sold Foucault's papers to the Bibliothèque Nationale in, in Paris. And these papers became progressively more and more available. They're now largely uh, all available to researchers. There's a few under embargo, but most are available. And this became a really rich resource uh, to explore what Foucault was doing in different periods of his career. And the more I, more time I spent with these archives, the more I kind of got the, you know, Derrida calls it archive fever, the, the bug, the, the excitement of, well, if that really exciting thing was in this box, what might be in the next box? What's in the next folder? And so I keep going back and doing more and more work, uh, both with the Foucault papers, but also increasingly with some of the people that Foucault uh, knew, who had taught Foucault, that Foucault was in correspondence with. Um, And this has been extremely valuable to the work that I'm doing uh, in opening up different aspects of Foucault's story. So, I mean, I, I said at the beginning, I was trained as a in, well, The first degree was in politics and history, but I didn't get any formal training in how to do archival work. So a lot of mm-hmm. it has been trial and error in terms of how I've approached these these questions. I think I've got a bit better at it as I've done more, but it's been, I suppose if there is a common theme to all my projects is you follow a problem and you follow the problem where the problem takes you, whether it's to different parts of the library, whether it's to archives that maybe have a, a little bit of information that helps you to join together two things that formerly seemed uh, separate. That's been something that's been really exciting for me is this uh, developing of work in archives over the last few years. Mm.
0: So I was wondering, I'm also, for the first time in my life, recently started doing archive work here at the Niklas Luan Archive. And an experience that I've been having, and I would be curious to know if you can relate to that, is that you, you've, of course, been interested in studying and reading Foucault for, for decades by now, and you, you kind of develop a personal relationship with, with this <laughs> figure. So doing this deep archival work and the, reading the kind of things that don't necessarily get published, has your personal relationship or just the image you have of Foucault, has that changed from having access to, to these unpublished sources?
1: It's an interesting question. I think um, one thing it's made very clear to me is just how much he worked. And I suppose I had a sense of that before. But, you know, there's a bit of an easy criticism of Foucault is that because there's not many footnotes in some of his books, that means he didn't really do the research. And I think that's just, uh, it's easy now, it's easier now to disprove that kind of accusation, because we have these incredibly extensive Uh, reading notes that he took in in the Bibliothèque Nationale when he was doing his research or in other libraries, but mainly that one, where he would take down the reference and then write out quotations that he thought he might be able to use at some later point. And there are thousands and thousands of pages of this. And some of these are being digitised, being put online at the moment, because they're unlikely to ever publish them in in their straightforward form. But the volume of material that that he produced and then thematically organized into folders and subfolders and so on that he could then use as a resource for when he wrote the books, because he would quite often write the books somewhere other than a library. So this was his sort of working notes or working materials that he could use. So it gives a very clear sense of how much Foucault worked. And then I also found interesting the the materiality of how he drafted and redrafted material, was something that I hadn't appreciated until I looked at manuscripts there's not many manuscripts of his published books because often when a book was published he would destroy the earlier versions of it. but there are a few versions of of books that are, were published in his lifetime that do still exist, particularly the second and third volumes of the history of sexuality and there's successive drafts of all of the chapters in those two books and there are i mean for for somebody in my generation this isn't this is a difficult way to think about how somebody worked, but he would write out text in longhand. He would give it to somebody else to type it. He would then amend that TypeScript, uh, and then he would often cut the TypeScript into pieces and glue it onto a new sheet of paper and write the linking bit between, and then join it to another bit of typed text. And I mean, I've never had anyone type my text. I've always typed myself, but he clearly had people trying to decipher his handwriting, but he would then use as the raw material for his next draft of the book. And that for me was very interesting in seeing that process of how something came from an earlier form into a a final published form. Uh, But the frustration I had with Foucault, I mean, if I could ask Foucault one question, why didn't you date anything? And of course, it's because he was doing this all for his own purpose. But there are drafts of texts, uh, there are all of these reading notes, nothing is dated. So it's very hard to know when something comes from and how it links to something that we can precisely date. Other people would always put the date at the top of a text and then you can very clearly link these where you can show how reading on a theme then only appeared in a published text or in a lecture at some later point. But Foucault doesn't give us those clues. So we have to to use other ways of trying to approach that to to build up this history.
0: Mm, And I suppose there's some cases where you have to admit defeat, right? And say that you cannot...
1: All the time and there are texts that i've i've looked at in the archive where i think i i don't feel confident in saying something about this because there's too many unanswered questions about the dates the provenance, what what he was intending to do with this how you put this fragment with another fragment and so on i mean the, the work of the editors of his uh, college de france courses and now they're doing some of the courses and, and manuscripts from an earlier period the work they're doing is extraordinary i think we don't always recognize what they do in order to produce a text that we can then often largely uncritically read. Uh, These texts are not existing in some stable form in the archive that simply just need to be turned into a book. There's a lot of work going into that process.
0: I was just wondering, Mm. I I feel like, see, I have the benefit of asking the author directly today, (laughs) but um, I feel like there's a kind of a shift in your... in the, the kind of people that you're interested in. So Foucault has always been kind of the baseline that's always been present. But mm. except for him, I feel like in the last 15 or 20 years that you've moved a lot from, broadly speaking, more kind of German philosophers and theorists and that you're currently more in a kind of a French phase. Do you, <sighs> Is my observation correct? Or
1: I, I suppose you could say that. And, and the... The um you know the early work, as I said, on on Nietzsche and Heidegger, as well as Foucault. But I, I suppose, in a way, the only way I'd see it is that that I've not worked on Heidegger for quite a long time.
0: I'm also thinking of someone like Carl Schmidt.
1: Well, the Carl Schmidt. I mean, I've really only written one piece on Carl Schmidt, and that was because when I was doing the Birth of Territory, I would get people would regularly ask me a question. Oh, but what about the nomos of the earth? Um, isn't that a you know a territory reading of international relations? Couldn't you look at it in that way? And so I, I got frustrated with always being asked this question. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll write something on why I think The Nomos of the Earth is such a bad book, um, or at least why the book is not a theory of territory and in international relations in the way that people think it is. So that was that was a later thing that was really just a single piece that was written out of a sense of frustration about how, since the Nomos of the Earth got translated into English, he was seen being seen as the kind of the spatial IR theorist, and and I thought that was was disturbing and and worrying, and so I wanted to to make a sort of an intervention about that what I saw as a problem. But Heidegger was the figure. I mean, Heidegger was extremely important to me at the beginning of my career, and so as part of that PhD certainly so, influenced a lot of how I read Foucault at the beginning. And I was trying to make the claim about how Foucault was in dialogue with Heidegger, even though Foucault very rarely mentions Heidegger. Heidegger's a, an important figure for him. And and just incidentally, he- um, Foucault makes a comment in one of his last interviews about how important Heidegger was for him. And he says, I still have the notes that I took when I was reading Heidegger, and there's tons of them. There's far more than I ever took on Hegel or on Marx. And 20 years ago when I was writing my PhD, these notes we we just knew about from Foucault's comment. Now with the archive opened up, I've seen those notes and Mm -hmm. they really are extensive. Foucault was taking 20 plus pages of notes on a single essay by Heidegger. So there were certain parts of Heidegger that he was reading very, very carefully uh, at a particular moment, we think in, in the early to mid 1950s. Heidegger was an important figure for Foucault. Heidegger, I think, is also important for Henri Lefebvre, Uh, although Lefebvre is obviously best known as a Marxist. Heidegger was a kind of dialogue partner for Lefebvre in quite a lot of his work. So Heidegger was there, but he was there in part to try to understand uh, some of these French thinkers. And then... I did write a book on Heidegger, which was called Speaking Against Number, which came out in 2006. But that was really the last thing I wrote on Heidegger. I felt I'd said what I had to say about Heidegger at that point. I didn't feel there was anything new for me to say. And I I toyed with the idea of of proposing a new edition of that book to take into account the more recent revelations about Heidegger and politics with the the Schwarze Hefte, the Black Notebooks. And I debated this and I, I decided that it would take me so long to do what I thought I wanted to do that there were other things that were more important to me at that point. And, and there were other people writing about the black notebooks in useful ways. So I I didn't develop that idea. And so I haven't gone back to the German uh, tradition in, in quite a while mm. now.
0: I was thinking to, to bring us more up to date. Um, I, I think I would be amiss not to ask this very current question. So at the moment, of course, we have this global pandemic uh, spreading across the world. If if you would like to talk about this, we can. If you don't want to, we can move along. But I was wondering, in your thinking, p- perhaps over terrain or territory, of course, what we're seeing, the reaction to, to this pandemic is immediately a very spatial one. It's... Right. Um, you know, it's all about boundaries and lockdowns and and restricting the movement of people in space. So do you think it it confirms your suspicions that you've had about how territory is politically understood at the moment? Is it a kind of return to something older? Is it something brand new that we're seeing?
1: I I don't really. Um, I think in a sense, it's a bit too early to tell. And I mean, like like anybody else, I'm, I guess, fascinated sort of almost to the point of distraction by what's happening. And one of the things I have done is is on my blog to do a page that's a list of links to people that have written about this, geographers, sociologists, philosophers, people that are sort of in the remit that the blog has tended to cover rather than traditional news sources. And it's been amazing, kind of the the great names of theory who have felt that they have to say something. Uh, about this and some of that has been very interesting and some of it has been very much a sort of a look this is what I was talking about all along and see how it, it now this gives a good example of my theme here and and some people I mean I haven't read Zizek's new book but you know the indecent haste of a book out already on something that is ongoing and I've, I've tried to resist being yet another voice that, that's sort of trying to say you know my quick take on what's going on and so on Uh, I think in time, there are likely to be changes. It remains to be seen whether the the freedom of movement for certain people in certain spaces can continue in the way that it did before. Uh, I mean, I've had to cancel a lot of my archival trips over the last few weeks and the the coming Mm -hmm. months as a result of this. And, you know, are we going to go back to things as they were before? Or are things going to be more complicated in terms of crossing borders, in terms of movement within continental Europe? and so on. That, I think, remains to be seen about how that that might play out. There's also been the, and this is very much on my mind in terms of how how useful or not Foucault's work is to thinking about these kinds of questions. And some people have, have written some very good things about this. So my colleague at Warwick, Daniel Lorenzini or Matthew Hanna, have both written very interesting pieces about how Foucault's ideas could be understood to understand some of these questions. Because Foucault obviously talks about the plague quarantine cities, vaccination programs is one of the themes in his Security Territory Population course or or the the biopolitics question. But there are other uh, voices and um, approaches that maybe need to be heard in those kinds of debates. But as yet, I don't feel I have anything distinctive or useful to say about this. I think about this a lot because when the war on terror was going on in the sort of the early period, the Bush era, war and terror it took me a while before i felt i had something distinctive to say about that Um, there were sessions at geography conferences that i was attending which i would go to the sessions because i was interested in this and i taught this with my students and discussed it and so on but it was only when i thought you know there's something going on about territory here that i think is interesting and important and that maybe because i've done this historical and conceptual work on territory maybe i can say something that's worthwhile and distinctive, that's when I felt I felt I had an intervention that was worth making. Um, and I, I've not yet found, not that I'm actively looking, but I'm, I've not yet found a, a thing that I have to say about the coronavirus pandemic that is worthwhile, that is distinctive, that, it, that, it, that is worth saying. So, so far, um, I've been sharing links to other people's work, but I've largely been focused on other things in, in my own time writing and so on at the moment
0: mm, yeah that's interesting because i've definitely had thought quite a few times in the last few weeks that i was becoming i don't know frustrated or annoyed by just the amount of opinions that i, I feel almost equally barraged by by opinion pieces by people that i often respect very much uh, but these last few weeks i have everyone is writing and I had exactly that same thought where I thought, I think it's probably a bit wiser at the moment to to sit back and just observe. I, I'm not sure if, uh, right. if anyone can say anything very useful already. I, I,
1: mean, I, think, I think in part of the moment, the voices that we need to hear are public health professionals, epidemiologists, people that are actually working, dealing with this. I think the moment for... I don't mean this entirely, but I think the moment for a more sort of social theory reflection on this may well come, but but I don't personally feel that we're necessarily there yet. I think there's far too many uncertainties about how this is going to play out, mm. and I I don't know. I, I think if I wrote something now, I might well regret it later because I would realise that that it was it was too hasty, that it wasn't thoughtful enough, that it wasn't uh, taking into account the professional expertise of things. So at the moment I'm very much observing and reading um rather than feeling I have something to say.
0: I think that's definitely more sensible. Well so w- what are the future projects that you do have lined up so we know it's not on COVID-19 right now. So what <laughs> no. what is on your plate for the next year or two?
1: Okay so I'm very close to finishing a book called The Early Foucault, which is this book on Foucault in really the 1950s. There's a little bit on the 1940s at the beginning, and, and it finishes with The History of Madness in 1961. But it's mainly what Foucault was doing in the 1950s, uh, where he publishes very little, but he writes quite a lot. And some of those manuscripts are available in the archive there's traces of his teaching work in different places in, in, in France, but also in Uppsala and in Hamburg uh, and in Warsaw. And I'm trying to build up a story of of how it was that Foucault came to write The History of Madness in, in 1961. And actually this week, I would probably have been sending it to the publisher had it not been for the pandemic and the fact that I can't get back to Paris and I can't do some of the archival work I need to do to finish off the last mm-hmm. Part of it, but it but it's very very close. I'm hoping that I will be able to get back to Paris maybe late this summer, um, and that then I should be able to finish off this book. Uh, so that's that's the the most immediate thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I will, with the Foucault work, I will go on and write the last book of of what's going to become this four volume study of his entire career, which will be a book on the 1960s. So from the birth of the clinic to the archaeology of knowledge. But again, filling in details from his teaching records, as much as there are for that period, there are some manuscripts from, from courses he taught at clement at the University of Tunis, and at the Vincennes University in the late 1960s, and other material to try and fill out a story of Foucault in the, that, that decade. There's an editing project on working on a collection of English translations of Henri Lefebvre's work on the rural, on rural sociology and political economy, Adam David Morton and I have been working on this for, for some time, and this should be a, a collection to be published in the next couple of years. And then after the Foucault work, um, I mean, it's still going to take a while to finish that book on the 1960s. After that, it's a little little less sure for me about what I'm going to do. I've got some ideas of different things, but at the moment, I'm not yet committed to any one mm, of those.
0: But not, not more Foucault?
1: I don't think so. I mean, the, the only way that at the moment I could see I might do some something else on Foucault is, is actually a book on Foucault and Shakespeare. And that dialogue between Foucault and Shakespeare's plays from, from quite early. I mean, his uh, schoolboy notebooks uh, from when he was in, studying English have got some material on Shakespeare. Um, oh, wow. Through to his late lectures, where he's talking about King Lear as a—you um, can read King Lear through this idea of Parisia, through this idea of the Frank speech of Cordelia to her father. So Shakespeare is a constant reference for Foucault. So I have some papers that that might find their way into a book on Foucault and Shakespeare, but I'm not sure about that yet. But I think in terms of the intellectual history, when I've done the book on the 1960s, I will have covered Foucault's entire career. So I think that probably will be enough from me on Foucault.
0: Mm. <laughs> no no books about cricket for you
1: no I think it's probably important that I keep some things that I don't turn into a subject of of academic work so cricket and cycling and yeah thank you very much and I've enjoyed this it's a a privilege to be able to speak about all these different parts of my work and how I see them connecting so thank you very much